talk about it, talk about it. Don't let it sit on your mind. When you talk about it, talk about it. It's your host, Teresa Sophia, and you are tuned in to episode three of the Mindful Podcast. I am joined here today by Luz, and returning is Mark. So I'm going to have them introduce themselves really quickly, and then we're going to get into the topic of discussion today, which is foster care and adoption. Hello, hola. My name is Luz. I'm currently a public servant for Boston City Council at large. Nice. Ayanna Presley. A. Uh, she just name dropped. Can we like <laughs> just make note of the fact that you just said Ayanna Presley? That's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. She's running for Congress, y'all. Yep. And I am originally born and raised in Brockton. Uh, my mother is Boricua. My father is from the Dominican Republic. 508 in the yeah. building. Cool. So my name is Mark. Originally, I was raised in Florida and I'm living here in New England now. Um, I work right now as a therapeutic mentor, working with kids with different behavioral issues, social skills that they need to work on and stuff like that. So that's what I do. Nice. And now that you guys have formally introduced yourselves, how are you guys feeling? Uh, honestly, you're really good right now. I've been kind of excited about this. Work has been crazy all week, and I just needed something to do to, like, relax. Mm -hmm. Even though my work is kind of similar to this, so it's, like, still thinking about it. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot better than being out there right now. So I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and it's an opportunity to reflect on your work. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm feeling the same. I'm feeling really good, grateful for the most part. I'm so busy with work, and so are you, Teresa. And so I feel like we never really get to share space. So I'm excited and looking forward You're to it. You're right about that. Yeah. I was thinking that on my way over. I'm like, we've had like a few interactions, but mm -hmm. like the interactions have been love, love, mm -hmm. like all love. But yes. it's like when you feel that love, you would think that we would try to be around that more. But I'm so happy you guys are here today. This is a topic that I feel like we do not talk about enough mm -hmm. in our society and especially as people of color black and latina like we need to talk about this because a disproportionate amount of people like us are in this system people don't even realize that it impacts who it impacts because think you're not directly in foster care so you mm -hmm. feel like it doesn't impact your life but yeah, yeah. you are sending your children to school with people who are yeah. in the system mm -hmm. you are possibly teaching i was a teacher in the bronx mm -hmm. these students so we got to help this population of people right. and it's just going to uplift and benefit everyone. So I just wanted to level set real quick. Yes. For those who don't know, foster care for children is the provision of substituted parental child care for children who are in need of care for which the child's parent or guardian is unable, neglects, or refuses to provide that care. So more than 250,000 people or children in the U.S., enter foster care every year. Although more than half will return to their parents, many will remain in the system. The average age of the children in foster care is over eight years old. Yep. 250,000 children. And these statistics were actually taken from a few years ago. So given the current climate and living in Trump America, mm -hmm. it's definitely, definitely more. Yeah. 
So I wanted to dive into like you guys' experience because there is a reason why I felt like you guys could bring a voice and highlight an experience in terms of this topic. So Luz, Mm -hmm. I know you've been in foster care. Mm -hmm. If you could just like tell us a little bit about that experience, maybe how many homes you've been in, kind of the takeaway, if there Mm -hmm. is one, two, three of like those experiences. Absolutely. So I'm 26 now, but when I was taken away, I was nine years old and returned home when I was 13. And it's crazy reading these statistics when, you know, now that I'm all older and out of the system, I believe it's 23 to 16 percent of the children in foster care are of Latino descent Mm -hmm. and about 10 to 8 percent are black of African American descent. And so my siblings and I, we were taken away. There's four of us all together. I was in about 22 foster homes from what I can remember within that time frame. And that was how many years? It was like four years. Yeah, just about. Wow. um, Almost four years. And you're separated by gender and age. And so luckily my sister and I are a year and a half apart. Mm -hmm. So she's my little sister. We were able to stay together the whole time. And it was crazy because out of the 22 homes, 17 of them were either Dominican or Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. So I actually learned to read and write fluently with these families through foster care. And so a lot of the times... Other people that I've met later on, they do have like some negative, rarely any positive experiences. But for me, my takeaway, I think it was the best thing for me and my siblings at Mm -hmm. that time because of, I mean, you stated the definition of foster care. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like these people are taking away, you know, breaking up families for no reason. Mm -hmm. However, I do think there are other ways to approach it Mm because there are cases sometimes where I don't think it is as severe or what this country defines as neglect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, a lot of it has to do with culture. I know my mother, she's very strict. And so like other people might see that from other cultures and be like, oh, you know, that's kind of abuse. And it's like, I mean, to a certain extent, it's just like also teaching etiquette and manners and like just mm-hmm. that your culture. The way I was brought up, like you walk into a room you say hello to all your elders. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care you know them or not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I still carry that to this day. Right. So, I mean, other people, it's not the same. Yeah. And same with me. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark, being Haitian. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> gotta, same exact thing. You got to yeah. kiss the elders. Mm-hmm. But you brought up a lot of good points. I think it was interesting that majority of the homes you were in had the same ethnic origin as you. Mm-hmm. How was the experience in the homes where they weren't of Latin descent. If they weren't of Latin descent, they were actually black. Mm. And so I had one black family who pushed me to write. I, I love drawing. I mm-hmm. could I learned to draw before I could write. And so I was never really a writer. And I used to argue a lot with them, but I always thanked them. I, I never forgot them for that because that's actually something that took me really far, like forcing me to read more. In my household, before I was taken away, reading and writing wasn't really pushed. School wasn't really even, like, pushed on us. I just decided I wanted to go. And then there was one other family, and they were white, super welcoming. Just felt like I was a part of them. And we were an emergency placement, so there's different types of placements. So when they came and took us, we weren't even at our home in Brockton. We were in New Bedford. Mm -hmm. And so I still don't know to this day how they knew exactly where we were at the day of. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother wasn't there. 
even with a white family where I was actually afraid because I'm nine years old. These people don't look like me. The only image I have of white folks outside of like the people I know is what I see on TV. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm like, oh, they're rich. They're fancy. Like they're probably going to throw me in a corner. I mean, I grew up watching Annie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm scared. That was part two. Um, Right. So they didn't have like our age group for our agenda. So it was a boys home. Mm -hmm. So we were only there for like two weeks. But they treated my little sister and I like we were their kids. Like we got like the biggest guest room. Like they even put us in like the rooms that they had like for the kids. They were like, you guys get your whole separate rooms on a separate floor. Just to make sure we felt comfortable and safe because the boys were so rambunctious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. We're all, like, yeah. we're all really young. And uh, my sister and I were very, very timid. That's good to hear because mm-hmm. I feel like you don't really hear that side when it comes to fostering. You mm-hmm. hear yeah. like the Annie stories mm-hmm. of the foster parents not treating their children equally to the foster kids. Yeah. So it's really dope that you've had good experiences mm-hmm. and you're actually saying like, this was for the betterment of myself right. and my siblings. Mm-hmm. That threw me for a loop right, right mm-hmm. there. <laughs> that was surprising. I mean, like you're saying, being Haitian, I know for sure when it comes to foster kids being in the house, it is known. Like they make it known that you're the foster kid mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And going out in public or uh, you can imagine you just want to be called by your name. But for them to say my foster kid blank is just already just distances them from the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, based off, cause I was working for DCF, that's a lot of homes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing they were short term. A lot of them. Very short term. There was only one person in my family that stepped in and we were with her like for the summer, my godmother for about three months. And she had like myself, my younger sister, and my younger sibling. Um, I have an older brother, but he went to go stay with his uncle So we were with them for a few months, but yeah, it was constantly like we had a duffel bag each and like you had your clothes in there. My sister and I were fortunate enough where like each of our foster family, you get an allowance for the foster kids Mm -hmm. and they gave us the money, like handed it to us, take it out in cash, take us to the store, spend what we need, what we don't, we keep. And at a young age, like it's not till now that I look at my nine-year-old niece and I realize like, wow, I was such a child and Mm -hmm. I was cooking, I was cleaning, I was like the mother in my household making sure myself and my siblings were up and getting to school on time. When we were taken away and I was put into these homes, I was getting myself ready, like questioning, like, excuse me, like I know my allowance is one hundred and forty six dollars. Like I have a remainder mm-hmm. of you this down the third. So like, it's like you grew up yeah. fast. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What was schooling like? Well for me I, I don't know where it came from, but I was always like really in love with like learning in mm-hmm. school. And so like before we were taken away, like we weren't woken up for school. I just had an alarm clock. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So, like, I had my alarm clock. I would set my timer um, and get myself ready and go to school. So I switched around in schools a lot. Mm-hmm. But I just always loved learning. So I just felt like, put me anywhere and I'm just going to, like, do my best. Because I could draw like that. I made friends, like, really quickly. I would just be quiet drawing at my desk and people would just, like, come over. And it, it was crazy because I never told anyone I was in foster care. The school bus would pick you up or I would get dropped off. I never invited anybody over my house. Like right. We didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones. So it was really easy for me mm-hmm. to compartmentalize. Could right. you imagine today? That would be so much pressure. And they're already yeah. dealing with a lot, mm-hmm. especially with all these images and everybody portraying yes. like this ideal life that they mm-hmm. don't even live to compare that to not having a permanent home. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh man, they must be going through it. No, absolutely. I mean, I mentor a lot of young women, like mm. formally and informally. I'm a big sister through the Big Sister Association. Nice. Um, and my mentee, her like life is so similar to mine. I was paired up with her when she just turned 14. Mm-hmm. She's now 18. And when I first got paired up with her, she had like um, it's a little bit different now because back when we were taken away, we didn't have this option, but. Um, you have like a social worker assigned to you and they kind of just monitor you, but you stay with your family. And mm. so one of the young girls I mentor, she has that right now. Mm-hmm. And so she either, you know, the social worker will either check in with me and like, you know, I can go check in with her at the house. But um, their case is like, you know, like for neglect, quote unquote neglect. And it's, she's a single mother. Like she works back to back jobs. And so a lot of the times I, like, jump in and, like, my friends will be like, girl, like, go to sleep. And this is why, like, Teresa and I barely see each other because I'm just like, yo, my job is 9 to 5. But, like, mm. people don't stop being homeless at 5. People don't stop being hungry at 5. Mm. And, you know, these That's young girls real. don't stop, like, not having their parents around at That's 5. Real. If I got to, like, run over to a house really quickly just to, like, spend the next three or four hours with them till their parents get home, mm-hmm. like, I'll do that, too. Because of what I went through, I understand the sense of urgency. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you can connect with them in yeah. that way. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah. So do you feel like you had any scenarios while you were with DCF that kind of mirror this? Or did you feel like when you, I don't want to say take the kids away, because mm-hmm. that just sounds so harsh. But when children were removed or placed into other homes, were there success stories like this? What did you see? So I mean, I was there for a short time, seven months. But I saw so much in that seven mm-hmm. months. I bet. Well, I was an ongoing social worker. So what you were talking about pretty much with the check-in, yeah. that was my job is to check in. Mm-hmm. 80% of the kids in the system or that are, have open files against them are at home. Mm-hmm. And it was like 20% that are in foster care. So most of my clients were still at home. But I did have a few that were in foster care. And you could see the trauma. Mm-hmm. You could mm-hmm. see it in the kids. Mm-hmm. Because every time they see you, so when am I going home? Mm-hmm. You know, when is yeah. that? When is it coming? And mm-hmm. the parents are also, when are they coming? Sometimes, sometimes they're not as eager to have the kids home because with everything that they're going through, right. the reasons that they were removed in the first place mm-hmm. is for whatever reason, their priority is not on the kid. Right. Mm-hmm. So that happens sometimes. And from a DCF standpoint, it can get frustrating when you want the kid to go home. Right. You don't want them to be in the foster system forever, especially if they've been in a home for a long time. You mm-hmm. want them home, but the parents are just not doing their part. Yeah. So it kind of really just sucks. What do you guys do as social workers to help get them to a place where they are prepared? Because I, I do work with a lot of psychologists, mm-hmm. psychiatrists, etc., And their mission is to move more towards prepping parents for like visits. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of what they do is like they'll buy toys Mm -hmm. and they'll like teach the parents how to play with their kids. Mm -hmm. And like this is not just in a way to like impress the social worker when they come, but Mm -hmm. you're teaching them just parenting skills in general. Like it's like, okay, the immediate is that it's going to be for this visit, but you, you need to learn how to play with your kids you need to learn how to interact with them right so what we do is the kid is removed and we say look we're trying to get the kid back there are some things that we want to see first we're going to do a one-hour visit every week or every two weeks depending on how severe the situation is Mm -hmm. and it's just you and the child in a room and you guys can play read whatever you want to do with your kid 
but we also need to give you a referral. We do that. We give referrals out. Mm-hmm. And one of them is is teaching parenting skills. So if the parents agree to do it, they go in and they go to a like child and family center or something and they take classes mm-hmm. learning how to play, learning how to engage with their children. And what we want to see is whatever they're learning, we want to be able to see that throughout the visits. Mm-hmm. And once we see that they do a good job and they're appropriate with their one-hour visits, then we try to extend the visits. All these visits are in the office. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's a small room. They're not free to do whatever they want, and they're being supervised. Mm-hmm. So what we want is the more they're consistent with their timing of their visits, consistent with being appropriate while they're having the visit, we'll increase the time, and then we'll try to do stuff out in the community. Mm-hmm. So instead of sitting in the office for two hours, I'll supervise you guys as you're playing at the park. If we see that you're doing well and being appropriate, then we tell the lawyers, all we do is tell them what we see. So if we Mm -hmm. see they're doing good things, it's a good word for them. And it makes it easier for them to go back home later. Have you seen like parents purposely sabotage? So my perspective is coming from having family members be foster parents. Mm -hmm. I have conversations with my aunts all the time about like their experiences. They don't get to interact with the parent directly, but their experience through the social worker or through the child. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are instances where like my aunt or my mother will feel like, the parent does not want them. So mm-hmm. they'll purposely miss visits or they'll purposely like not that relapsing is within their complete control, mm-hmm. but like, it's not like they're trying to get better in any way if they have an addiction because they appreciate or like the fact that the state is taking care of them. Right. There was a situation with one of my friends where the mother just prioritized like being with the boyfriend right. and felt like if she were to bring the kids back into the household, it would take time away from her and the boyfriend. It would take money away from her and the boyfriend. So did you see instances like that where they kind of self-sabotage? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can remember situations where the parent got used to the kid not being home. So they were free. They didn't have to pick them up after school. They didn't have to make them breakfast or Mm -hmm. anything. So they took that time to be social to go out with friends, to get into more trouble, to be with the boyfriend. And they sort of prioritize the boyfriend over the children. And we give them a referral for parenting classes or for whatever they need, and they just won't go. Mm-hmm. They'll tell us that they're going to go, and then they won't follow through with, with the appointment. Now, I'm glad you guys say this because, you know, I talk about like, you know, I felt like in my foster care experience, it was the best thing for me at that time. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not saying that's the best approach. Mm-hmm. And being removed from your home is so disruptive oh, yeah. that at nine years old, I remember like vividly the first night I'm in this completely strange home because they take you and don't tell you where you're going because right. they don't want you in contact with your parents or your family. Mm-hmm. And so it's so disruptive For a long time, it wasn't until recently, that I always believed and it started to like, my subconscious started to like inform what I did. Mm -hmm. And so I just believe like, if I can be removed and taken out of my own home, taken away from my own mother who gave birth to me, who Mm -hmm. like tells me, you know, girl, I brought you in this world, I'll take you right out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, my mom is like the closest thing to God. I think a parent's love is the closest thing you get to Mm -hmm, God in mm -hmm, the flesh. mm -hmm. And so it's so disruptive and traumatizing that, like, I had this resentment against my mother for years Mm -hmm. that you have no control. Like, the only thing that really is mine is what's in my head. 
Right. Mm. I became so detached from like material things, from being away from my mom for those four years that when I finally came home, now while we're separated, while I'm in foster care, my mom's supposed to be getting her stuff together. Mm -hmm. No one's giving us mental health treatment. It's right. towards the end. You get exit therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, I started as like, who's this white man who doesn't know me? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I get to go home and he wants to sit here and ask me about my personal like life and what I'm feeling. This is mm -hmm. weird. Mm -hmm. No one's asked me what I feel mm -hmm. because like your emotions aren't talked about. Mm -hmm. I mean, growing up, my culture, the way we are, it's like a child stays in a child's place. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yeah, I'm 13, but I've seen so much. Like, I, I have something to say. I have something to contribute. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you're a little girl. Like, be quiet. No, mm -hmm. you're a little girl. Be quiet. And you're pushed to the side. Mm -hmm. So when I finally came home. I didn't have a good relationship with my mother. And from 13 to 18 years old, all that was for me was a countdown to when I can leave. And mm -hmm. my birthday is October 24th. I told my mom, like, we would fight all the time. And I would tell her, like, October 24th, when I'm 18, no. I am leaving. Mm -hmm. I am leaving. And sure enough, that day on my birthday, I no. left my mother's home and I never looked back. Right. And mm -hmm. so, like, I blamed her for so much stuff until I came across, like, systemic poverty. Mm -hmm. And so all that is a part of it. And so, like... You know, I do say, like, for me, my foster care experience was the best thing for me in that time. Mm -hmm. But I do not think it's the best solution. Mm -hmm. right. And so, like, just listening to you speak, Mark, mm -hmm. um, and how you were a social worker. So my best friend and roommate, Linda, is a social worker. Um, mm -hmm. And something I always told her while she was in grad school is y'all play the most important role in these foster kids, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. in their lives. Because mm -hmm. my social workers, like, I remember them, like, Kelly michael and dory mm -hmm. and dory was my favorite she was k verdian and she would always teach me how to say like different things in her Aww. language and i teach how to say things in spanish and that process is so scary for us that my social workers like kept me grounded yeah. mm -hmm. they didn't desensitize me but mm -hmm. they like worked with me there were times my mother missed a lot of appointments mm -hmm. she was supposed to be doing certain things she wasn't doing and, you know, he would tell me as the older sibling to my sister, and he'd be like, you know, we're going to say it in a nice way to her. But to you, you know, your mom's not doing what she needs to do. Mm -hmm. And that made me resent her. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize, like, hold on, mom. You're not even getting what you need. You're just being told, all right, go do this. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, hold on, let me show you how you should do this. That, you know what I, I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's like, that's why I do public service work. I went from being in the private sector and accountant, making very good money, going to public service, taking a 60% pay cut, because I'm like, wow. Yo, this doesn't fulfill me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm contributing to the problem. Like, I'm just making rich people richer. Mm, you know? I felt the same way. And Not that so, I was in corporate America. You know what but I mean? yeah. And I'm mentoring young girls at the same time. And mm -hmm. I'm meeting more and more of them. And I'm like, they're either Latina or African descent. Yeah. And they're going through the same things I went through. Like, mm -hmm. I got to put more time so into this. So you're being <laughs> what you needed at that age for other girls. I think, that's, I think that's perfect. I think that's needed. Yeah. Because... I started as a mentor, and then I became a DCF worker, mm -hmm. and then I went back to being a mentor <laughs> because I was like, no, there's something missing because mm -hmm. the kids, I can't interact with the kids like I was when I was a mentor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just, how are you doing? You doing okay? Let me make sure you look healthy mm -hmm. from what I see on mm -hmm. the outside, mm -hmm. you know? And here, mom, if you want your kid back, here's this referral. Go get counseling. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have no idea how mom's doing. Mm -hmm. right. Even if I call the therapist to check in, I'm really just checking in if mom is going. That doesn't tell me much about how mom's doing. Are they mm -hmm. allowed to tell you how mom's doing with it, confidentiality? It, all, de it all depends about the release. If mom signs mm -hmm. a release saying that we can discuss what they actually talk about, mm -hmm. then yeah, we can. But even if the therapist tells me how they're doing or what mom has talked about, 
a lot of that I can't put into the court report itself mm-hmm. because it's not you just can't put that in the court report. In the court report, you put mom is consistent or not consistent. Mm-hmm. So systemically, it just looks bad sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've gone to court to testify and I can't just speak out and say what I want and mm-hmm. how I really feel. All I can do is if they have any questions about the paper right in front of me, the court report, they can ask me those questions. I can't just be like, actually, I want to add something, you know, mm-hmm. because sometimes I want to be more of an advocate for them. And, mm-hmm. I, and I feel like I can't sometimes. So I guess the general consensus is that children should be with their parents. And we feel like this society or the system isn't supporting the mm-hmm. parents enough, nor are they supporting the children. Right, right. right. Are you guys seeing like a high turnover in social workers too? Because I'm actually kind of surprised that you only had three throughout those years because I feel like it's always a new social worker that's always. coming in. Yeah. Well, Dory was probably the most consistent. She was there like a year and a half. And then I had Michael and then Kelly. I was there like maybe three and a half, four years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I had like that's three social three. workers. Okay. So the turnover is pretty high. It's yeah. high. I did seven months. Yeah. <laughs> and after that, I was like, I work a lot better engaging with kids one-on-one. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. Everybody needs support. Yes. Like even yeah. social workers oh, because yeah. you guys are getting underpaid and overworked. And overworked. <laughs> overworked. And the things that you guys see, like mm-hmm. even just the description of different scenarios that happen within the health center that I work at, I'm just like you guys can take that. I'm out in the community. I'm <laughs> right. like throwing events and yeah. health fairs, like touching base with for people real? like yeah. A few times a week, but it's always like in a very like happy context or as happy as it can right. be. Right. But you guys see like the nitty gritty. The nitty gritty. We see it from yeah. when the case opened. So we're reading on paper what happened. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're just mortified. Like, do you just like what happened? Like, you just cannot believe what you're reading. And then you got to go into the home and see the face to the to the paper, you know. And go through the whole process with them. And sometimes the kids get removed and all of that. So it's like you're really seeing a lot of the negative stuff. What I see a lot of, too, is like people are replacing what therapy and talking to someone would do with medication. So a lot of like my family members take like the highest risk kids Mm -hmm. and pill bottle, pill bottle after pill bottle. It's ridiculous because they'll be like five, six, seven years old, and they'll have all these different health conditions. And it's like, no, they probably have PTSD. Yeah. No, they probably have, like, undiagnosed ADHD or whatever, and Mm -hmm. you guys are just throwing all these pills at them to calm them down. But it's really, they want to release all of this trauma that they've been going through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm so happy you said that because I remember being in foster care and seeing other kids have like ADHD, ADD, quote mm-hmm. unquote, I really feel like people just label things they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Especially with people of color. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was so afraid. I remember my social workers would take us to like the checkups, our doctor checkups. Mm-hmm. And the doctor would always ask me like, how are your grades? How are you in school? And mm-hmm. I was always so afraid to say like, 
I would feel so much, but I, I would get good grades. I would always make honor roll and all that. But it was always out of fear because all my siblings, they gave them medication and labeled them ADHD. Mm. But I'm like, do you not know that like we have, you know, a mother with this illness and battling this addiction mm-hmm. and this and this goes on in our house? Did you know that we just actually witnessed someone being stabbed? There was a blood scene in our house just the night before. You know, wow. my crib was just raided, wow. you know, at 6 a.m. And here I am at school at 730 and you're wondering why, like I'm zoned out and I'm not answering your question or paying attention to class. Did you go class. to school in Brockton or was it New Bedford? Everywhere. Every- Everywhere. I went to school in New Bedford, Fall River, Brockton, Boston, Stoughton, mm-hmm. Canton, Easton. And were your teachers predominantly white? Yeah, they were predominantly white. They all knew I was in foster care because they let the school know. Mm-hmm. But the teachers don't tell any of the students. And so I swear I was like blessed the whole time because every single teacher I had knew and they would always pull me aside on the first day and ask me like, all right, what do you need? Do you want me to like introduce you to the class? Do you want to introduce That's yourself? Awesome. Like, do you want to sit in the back? Do you want to sit in the front? Like, what are you feeling? And it was just like, yeah, I was blessed, you know. And mm-hmm. that's why, like, I don't want to completely bash the system because mm-hmm. I do, like you said, we all need support and we all need help. Mm-hmm. If we could tweak this and approach it in a less disruptive way, yeah, mm-hmm. where we're making sure, like, at the end of the day, like, I don't believe um, it is like human nature to like. I treat your kid that way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't believe my mother intentionally wanted to, like, neglect us or abuse us. Because, mm-hmm. like, right. at the end of the day, like, I call my mom and I could tell her, like, this person threatened my life and she's there, no questions asked. I remember being in a foster home and it was just the craziest thing. It had to be, like, 2 a.m. And my sister and I were laying in bed and we're awake and we're like, yo, that sounds like mom. That's mom's voice. We hear it outside. Mm-hmm. And we're, like, in Taunton. That's another place I went to school. Mm-hmm. In Taunton. <laughs> in this little complex and we open our window and my mom knows our neighbor and she's like picking up a washer she bought from her what? and i'm like mom like we're ready to like jump out the window we lived on the first floor and we're like you know saying what's up to our mom and stuff like that but we couldn't let the foster parents know right. yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what i mean it was just the craziest thing and then like that family who we lived with they were vegetarians and my sister and i loved meat and mm-hmm. so my mom would like sneak us at night bring us food and like bring us meat and like clothes, candy, like money. That's dope. But if like, she got caught, uh huh, it was gonna be bad. <laughs> but my mom was coming through, you know. Yeah. And so like she's like, oh, this is where y'all live. We're like, yeah, mom, you know. And we didn't have cell phones and no social media again. So it was like, I, that had to have been God or some crazy intervention because like. What the heck was my mom doing in Taunton? How do you think that made her feel to be able to provide for you and give you things, even though, like, she wasn't always with you guys? I mean, I know she loved it. I mean, like, if she could even bring us a can of Chef Boy RD, like, she would drive from Brockton to Taunton. Like, we had to wait because, like, our foster family went to bed, like, at 10 p.m. Like, they were Mm -hmm. a lot older. Mm -hmm. So we knew their schedule. We lock our door from the inside, like, turn the TV on, like... (laughs) Wow. And cute. we're just out, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, we did that for, like, several months. That was our last foster home before we were able to go home. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's this whole process, like, when you're getting towards the end, towards the, your last six months, mm-hmm. um, you're allowed to sleep over the house on weekends and okay. stuff like that. But the social worker picks you up and takes you, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, my mom just knew where we live because of, you know, that instance. So, now that I'm older, I look back and, like, I never had, like, the latest clothes, shoes. Like, yeah, no, nah, yeah. I was wearing, like, my brother's clothes. I was such a little tomboy. Like, I was fine with it. I'm like, yeah. I love sweats anyways. Like, yeah. it's, it's no problem to me. 
My sister was a girly girl. She wasn't having it. It's a great approach. Yeah. And I, I look back now and I'm like, you know what? My mom is the best parent. Mm. She actually gave me the most valuable thing. And that's not to value the, your materialistic things, but to mm. believe you can do anything you want. Right. Mm. That's one thing. My, my mom might have never given me everything I wanted, but there was nothing my mom said I couldn't do. I remember being nine mm. years old. I was like, mom, I want to be a rapper. At 12 years old, she was like, yeah, girl, let me hear it. Like, let me see what you got. Like, start writing it down. And like, I told my mom, I was like, ma, like, I want my hair braided. Like, she's braiding my hair. She's like, girl, you better have some bars. She'd be checking up on me. Like, (laughs) let me hear something. You know, when I was 12 years old, Mm -hmm. I all of a sudden wanted to be in WNBA. She buys me a basketball. She was like, you better be out there practicing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There was... 14 years old, I wanted to be a cosmetologist. Like, I was always changing what I wanted to be, you know? She supported and it. She was like, you can do anything you wow. want. You mm-hmm. can do anything you want. And so, like, I think that was the greatest gift my mother gave me. That's dope. Um, I, I think, you know, she did not have the support she needed to get us back. And, like, now that I'm older, like, that's my best friend right now. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we'll go weeks without talking but when we do we're like on the same page and she's like you know i've been thinking about this and planning that i'm like yo mom me too you know like she's an artist herself she's very creative she's always thinking of something to do some plan or endeavor she's up to so i mean i love it and you feel like if she got the support she probably would have been able to get you guys sooner if she had the support we would have never been taken away Mm, you know what i mean i feel like my mother because it's not like they just come in and they're like oh like we noticed your kids got bruises. We're going to come and take them. Because it, right. it wasn't that. You know, for our case, unfortunately, it was someone who was close to the family who, I don't know, she had a fallout with my mother and she filed an anonymous case. But she knew too many details. She put too many details in the report that we were like, hold on, only one person knows this. You know so what I mean? how long, I don't want to get too deep into mm-hmm. it because I know it's personal. How long did it take from that report until the, the first removal? Uh I want to say about six months because they came and knocked on our door mm-hmm. and we barely went to school. And that's something that was also in the report. Like my mother was barely okay. sending us to school. And so they came in a day. We were supposed to be in class. We're in our house, like just chilling. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they noticed that. And then there was just other things they were checking up on behind the scenes where I'm like, instead of y'all trying to play FBI, like yeah. how bad are these kids being mistreated? Mm-hmm. If you get one call, like, you know what I mean? Go in and see. All right. What do you need? Yeah, mm-hmm. you can't blame someone for something they don't know. That's what it's. Mm-hmm. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's why, like I said, we go in and the kids stay home first, mm-hmm. and then over time, if the parents don't turn it around, then it's like, okay, we might need to have a discussion about a removal. But it seems like they were quick to do a removal mm-hmm. without getting more checks inside the house first to see yeah. how mom is with you guys, mm-hmm. instead of just saying. When was the last time they was at school? Oh, she got 36 absences already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they haven't been to the doctors for a checkup in, uh, in two years. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what they look so at. So that, they see that. They're like, all right, we have a checklist. That's enough. Mm-hmm. And then know? my older brother, who was labeled ADHD, getting suspended all the time. But it's like, he don't even have his father. A lot right. of these young boys don't even have men in the homes right. to be like helping them. Because every child is brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's if you don't have that adult in your life to help you harness it, mm-hmm. you're going to be a loose cannon. You know what I mean? And I felt like such a blank canvas, especially mm-hmm. as a woman of color in this country. And I felt like everybody's trying to paint the picture for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and my mom was the only person who was giving me the paintbrush. Like, baby, mm-hmm. do what you want. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's crazy that they see all of these things, but they don't look at what gets us to that point. So mm-hmm. why aren't they asking like, oh, did you have a ride to school? Like, right. do you need transportation? When's the last time you ate? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you do know? you have free or reduced lunch? Like, 
what are other factors that are contributing to you missing school? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and it's just so quick. We continuously talk about how color plays a role into a lot of these systems, but it's like, I feel like people are quick to villainize people of color. Yeah. So it's like, if the outcome is they're not doing X, Y, and Z, it's like, you look at the parent and it's like, it's all your fault yep. right. when it's like, okay, but I am trying to navigate a system that is against me right. and I might have issues with addiction or whatever, whatever it is. And I'm not feeling supported yeah. by the system. It's mm-hmm. actually bringing me down even more. Right. And I just wanted to add, and then that's how we end up overlooking our resilience too at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like as people of color, man or woman, you yeah and we overlook that so easily you know what i mean i'm like and my boss says this all the time she's like give yourself credit for just getting up mm. in the morning like that's such mm. a hard thing to do mm-hmm. like so when we first started training everything we've said pretty much is what they said to us about being caring and thinking about the deep stuff and figuring out why things like it's like that but then when i got to the office and this social workers have been working for 10 years and they're just tired because they're burnt out, but mm-hmm. they're still working there. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff goes right out the table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the ones that are burnt out and leave are the ones that sometimes care a lot and just can't handle yeah. mm-hmm. what they're dealing with. Cause that, I know that was my story personally. I cared. Like I just, I'd be thinking about it. Like when I'm home mm-hmm. and what they're going through mm-hmm. and what more can I do? And my supervisor says, but did they go to the appointment though? I'm like, no, because they don't have a car right? or there's no gas. Yeah. They lost their job. Right. Well, that that's another missed appointment. So right. mm. so it's like really cutthroat mm-hmm. sometimes. So. And that must be like a crazy position to be in. Like, do I choose myself in this moment and mm-hmm. like protect myself? Mm-hmm. And like, can I be okay going home? But it's a tough decision to make. But sometimes... I'm glad you chose yourself, but then it's like the sacrifice because it's like, right. well, at least you know you're a good person in this position helping these children. Mm-hmm. And it's like somebody else could take over and not be as good. So, And then it's also like this idea of giving up yeah. on these children yeah. that like need your support. Just to think of myself as being another social worker that left a yeah, kid, yeah. you know, it feels really bad. Especially if teaching. they've had like 10 social workers. I'm like, I'm number nine, you know? Right. Yeah. I don't like that feeling, but... I know that with my job now, I have kids on my caseload that are in foster care. So I can be that person that they can talk to. I can be that advocate for them. Yeah. But yeah, we do need a lot more within DCF that are like really trying. I think there should be more social workers. Like I love how you talked about how you mentor Mm -hmm. and how because of what you've been through helps the girls who are currently going through it. And it would be dope if there were more incentives for people to pursue social work that were in situations that you were in. Like if there was some sort of and like one of the things I did want to talk about too is like what kind of resources are there for people who have been in foster care who have aged out who are now in the real world because aging out is mm-hmm. a, another big one right. too because you're just being thrown out into mm-hmm. the world right and you do not have this foundation right you're more likely to have a mental illness you're more likely to be homeless you're more likely to be living underneath the poverty level yeah. and then it's like once you turn 18 it's Less like likely to complete education exactly all of that and yeah. it's all interconnected right so what resources do you feel like would be helpful for people who were in the foster care system mm-hmm. to live like healthy normal lives uh, well i mean 
now, I don't know how long it's been this way, but there are adolescent social workers. So they work with high teenagers all the way up into if they sign back in. So you can sign yourself back in after 18. You can sign yourself up to like 22 Mm. or 23 if you want. And a lot of people, they go for that because they know I'm supposed to just go out there and find an apartment like. 18 is mad young. That's Even really 22 young. And you need credit to get an apartment. Credit, yeah. You need all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So there are some resources. DCF does try to find housing for them. Also, they do try to help with tuition for in-state Massachusetts schools, in-state for certain fields and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they do try to help, but there's a bunch of qualifications sometimes, so it makes it tricky. But they're trying. But yeah. I know they could do more. So It's like they say they give you support, but then you have to jump through all these hoops to get it. So it's like, are they really giving you support? Because it's not accessible. Right. right. You know, like I said, I'm 26 now, and I'm just now discovering resources. Mm-hmm. And so a group that I'm a part of is Mass Foster Care Alumni Association for Foster Alumni and Allies. Mm-hmm. And so we meet once a month, the last Thursday of every month, It's usually at the Prudential at Copley, uh, the Microsoft Center. They have like a backspace where they have like a few tables. And this young woman named Grace, who was also in the system, she's a foster alumni. She started it and it's Mass NFCA. I think you liked one of my posts where um, we declared earlier this year uh, we had Foster Care Week Mm -hmm. in Boston Mm -hmm. and they hold a walk. I think it's their second or third year doing it now. We meet once a month for either professional or personal like development. And she's so talented and so brilliant and she brings her network to the table Mm -hmm. and then every other person that comes to tables brings theirs. Mm -hmm. And when I met her a year ago, she had no idea that like we could declare a Foster Care Week in the city of Boston. We could have you come to the Boston City Council, have you talk to all these counselors and have them push out all these networks and then we could really start addressing policies Mm -hmm. and getting ambassadors and really raising awareness. Yeah, Because the um, Mass State House, they actually used to have a foster care committee Mm -hmm. and they had a whole caucus on it and if I'm not mistaken, either it it just like dissolved and kind of faded away because Mm -hmm. of the rep who used to chair it, they're not there anymore, but because of the work Grace is doing, also another woman that I met, her name is Anne. She runs this organization called One Can Help. It's pretty much a bunch of folks who bring together money Mm -hmm. and they help funnel that into like social workers or teachers that work with kids in need and families in need. And they just have fundraising to help raise money. And so like, you know, going back to like my experience Mm -hmm. and the role I do as a public servant, I'm like, I have my network, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the best thing I could do for Grace and for Anne is to connect them to all the constituents that are like constantly calling. I need X, Y, Z, the people I know, the young girls I mentor, like, and we just got to continue building those resources because something I realized too, is a lot of this is new to us folks of color. We're just starting to talk Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And so like Massachusetts is known for like the state of education and like having the most progressive and best public educational system. Mm-hmm. But like we've gone through that system. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it could use some, some help, yes, you know? Yes, yes, And so like a lot of our kids go through that. Mm-hmm. And that's like a place that we spend most of our time. And that's a place that's also neglected. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's like you said, it's all interconnected. And so we are the first Actually, Boston is the first city in this whole country to hire an assistant superintendent solely focused on social emotional learning. Mm. And trauma is just now starting to be talked about in informing policy. Mm-hmm. Maybe six, eight years ago when mm-hmm. I Councilor Ayanna Presley first joined the city council. I remember hearing stories about her and folks like laughing at her like, <laughs> like trauma really affects a child's learning. 
yeah Wow. like if yeah. i could be honest with you and what i was really feeling in the anxiety mm-hmm. and i didn't understand that it was anxiety mm-hmm, at the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i'm sitting in the class and like i'm nervous and thinking about where am i sleeping later am mm-hmm. i even gonna eat what family i'm gonna live with now mm-hmm. and i'm just like you know i used to get in trouble a lot for like the teacher would be like you're so like spacey and so aloof mm, and i'm like there's a reason actually for this. i'm like really just replaying every yeah. traumatic event that i just went through mm-hmm. but i didn't even understand what i was doing so then i start building that narrative in my head i'm like wow i'm spacey i'm aloof like mm. i really don't know what i'm doing mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. so which it's a further lot. deepens the trauma because they don't understand mm-hmm. that your lived experience affects how you are in the classroom yeah. especially when you have people in front of the classroom as an authoritative figure whose experience is nothing like no, yours, right. there's a huge disconnect. Absolutely. This is a lot. You so have like three episodes. I know. <laughs> I know. It's a lot. And it's so amazing hearing your story. Like this is amazing. And I really commend yeah. you for your resiliency and really passing this on to other girls because a lot of people think you're born with resiliency and Mm -hmm. yes you are to a certain extent right right Right. but you build it and if you have a lower amount you can do things to increase it and improve it and it's really dope that a lot of young girls have someone to reflect their experiences with and a role model so that they can see and be kind of like how your mother was it was like she was telling you you could do anything and like you can be that voice for these girls but not just say it but you lived it so that's really dope that's really dope i definitely think about that and like my siblings you know they tell me the same thing and they those are my best friends they're really my my reminder and like it took me seven years to get my bachelor's and it, it took me so long. I could not understand, like, why mm-hmm. is this so hard emotionally? It's emotionally and mentally, financially draining. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And my siblings would just be like, you know, no, you're going to graduate. You can do anything. You can do anything. And it wasn't until, like, I graduated high school in 2010. I was supposed to be graduating college in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I saw all my friends graduating. They're all posting everything on social media. And I'm like, I'm, like, way behind. Like, I want to give up. Mm-hmm. And I came across a fact that was, like, only 10% of kids that go through foster care, end up going to college. And of those 10%, only 1% on average end up graduating. Wow. So I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm in college on a scholarship. Mm. So I ended up studying architecture for two years, ran out of scholarship money. I'm like, I'm broke. Like, I'm not going to pull money out of thin air. Mm -hmm. So I went to Cambridge College. Their whole mission statement is about helping you get access to an opportunity you were denied for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. And so because I was in foster care, they were able to find me all this state money Mm. and get me all these scholarships. And I was able to graduate. So I was like, took me seven years, but I did it. it. You (laughs) did it. That one (laughs) percent. Wow. That's amazing. But yeah, we have the best schools in the country. You know what I mean? So, I mean, there's there's a lot of work to be done. (laughs) We're going to wrap up soon, but I did want to touch base on adoption really quickly. Mm -hmm. Was there ever like an experience? I know you weren't working for DCF too long but like was there an experience where um you had a child get adopted or not adopted yeah i've had a case where a kid got adopted a baby like not even one Mm. the goal is reunification that's the Mm -hmm. first goal Mm -hmm. it was drug use for mom so and there was no signs of stop if it's stopping drug screens came back positive Mm -hmm. all the time so the foster mom fell in love with the baby it was clear that mom wasn't up for the task of trying to get the baby home 
So eventually the baby ended up getting um, adopted by the foster mom. And mm. the house is a, just a great home. The foster mom provided everything for this child from birth all the way up to one years old. Mm-hmm. And this is like the only face that the baby has ever seen, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. So it's a success story, in my opinion. So that's one that I know of. Was there any point where you were up for adoption, this? No, but we did have the option. Mm-hmm. I remember um, my sister... She didn't really understand what was going on. And it's crazy. We're only a year and a half apart. And I was like, we're going home. And she's like, nah, like, I like this house. It got a pool. I've never mm-hmm. seen a pool. It has a trampoline. Like, she's mm-hmm. so desensitized. Yeah. And I'm like, do you think mom's coming to move in with us? Like, right. no, we can't go back. Like, right. So I was like, no, like, she has no say. And like, you know, I, I was not having it. But there was one family that I lived with and they adopted mm-hmm. one of the kids there. So they treated us all like their family. But he was adopted when he was a baby before he was one as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And they just never told him. Mm. And so I thought about that. And I stayed in contact with them Mm -hmm. all the way up until like he was four years old when I was in foster care, like Mm -hmm. in the home with him. And um, he's now like 16 or 17. And Mm -hmm. he found out on his own he was adopted because he was rummaging through like some papers. And he like had a trigger like this. He flipped on the family he's very resentful of them Mm -hmm. um i haven't been able to follow up last i heard of him was like a year ago and he was like in and out of like juvie and just having a hard time in school and i'm just like wow anybody who sees him is gonna be like look at this like you know kid who just got no type of like home training and just label Mm -hmm, him mm -hmm. and i'm just like little do you know this he was raised his whole life thinking this is my real family and then all of a sudden like What are these papers? Like, I'm not your family. Like, and he looks just like them. You, he couldn't even tell. If he would never found these papers, who knows? Yeah. You know, and I, I always thought about that. Like, after that home, like, I've thought about wanting to adopt children and be a foster mother myself. Mm-hmm. I would want to tell the child, mm-hmm. like, as they're growing up, like, I'm not your real parent. You know, maybe, like, let them know where their real parent is. I'm just speaking because I've never really been in it. But yeah. I just think about, like, my mother and my sister and how, like, if she would have been adopted. My sister, so de- she doesn't even remember a lot of this stuff. So I'm like, if she would have been adopted, she probably would have, like, forgotten most of us yeah. if I would have mm-hmm. just let her go, you know? Yeah. And so there's no attachment there to them, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's just like that really does something to the psyche. We end up growing up with a lot of untreated trauma and trauma triggers and all that that mm-hmm. all plays into it i remember picking up a girl who was going to find out that she was a, she was getting adopted yeah so i already knew she was getting adopted i go pick her up for her regular visit and i'm just like what do i do in this short car ride to get this child ready for what the news that she's about to hear right. mm-hmm. and i did not know there was nothing much that i can do because it wasn't my job to tell mm-hmm. you know because there are adoption workers so I bring her into the meeting, to the visit, and I step out, and the adoption worker comes in, and she just starts crying, and I got to be the one to bring her home Mm -hmm. after that. So it was just tough, just like not knowing what I can do, because I know this traumatic experience is about to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, even on like the foster family side, there is like this feeling of like detachment Mm -hmm. because my mom had a foster son that she loved, 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 loved. This was when I was an undergrad Mm -hmm. and I wasn't home. So my relationship wasn't as strong with him as it was my mother. 
she loved this little boy to be core, like be core. But once you get adopted, I think he got adopted by his grandmother because mm-hmm. uh, they do try to keep it in the family. So yeah. if it's not your parent, mm-hmm. um, it's like who's the closest in lineage to right. the child. And um, my mom called him maybe like a few times, but she wanted the transition to be like smooth. So she wasn't like overbearing, mm-hmm. but she just she missed this boy like yeah. so so much and they do even promote you not calling them that much too because they want them to transition into their new family and she's just always like even the other day she asked me to like look up Jaden like on Instagram <laughs> like he's old enough he might have social media yeah. now and like we looked him up and we were looking at pictures and she she started bawling yeah. like she really missed this little boy mm-hmm. and she's just constantly like I'm always praying for him yeah. I'm always thinking about him but the system doesn't encourage there for there to be a relationship right. after right. he spent like I think it was like four or five years in our home Wow. Like he had like he was eating Haitian food. <laughs> yeah. He was speaking Creole. Yeah. Like he like really adapted and like was really a part of the family. Like my parents took him to Disney. Like mm-hmm. lots of firsts were in our family. And wow. just to imagine like his experience living with a family member that he didn't even really know at the time. Like yeah. my family was the only family he knew. And he called my mom mom and everything mm-hmm. just to like go from having that and then like never again like no contact whatsoever so it's they feel it on both ends too no absolutely i definitely still keep in touch to this day with my foster like families as much as i can social media made it a lot easier Mm -hmm. but every time i left a home they're like here's my number like always call me and check in and because most of them were latino like Mm -hmm. i would and like i said they taught me to read and write in spanish so like back to like the whole respect thing i just feel like i owe them And really, that's really pushed me to do the work I do today. Because now that I'm older, I'm like, these people, these adults could have been anywhere else with all these types of jobs, making all types of money. And instead, they choose to take care of us Mm -hmm, and these mm -hmm. kids that they didn't have themselves. So I just feel like forever indebted to those families and people in the public service work. I commend all of you guys. (laughs) There's a huge narrative, though, that foster parents do it for the money. So did you ever feel like there was that? I mean, even if it's for the money, it's not like they're making six figures. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's just like every family I was with, they gave me my money. Yes, they get their part and like they were able to make it work. But like no one was living lavish Mm -hmm. and everyone was loving. And so there are those families that I do hear about. There is a young girl that I mentor where her younger sister is in foster care. She's in a group home and she'll call me like, Sometimes at midnight, 1 a.m., like, I'm sick. Like, I don't know if my sister's okay. Like, she just told me, like, you know, her foster mom just, like, really just excludes her from everything and really makes her feel like you are not a part of the family. Mm -hmm. And so something I'm actually doing on my own and really researching with one of my mentees is, is there, and I got this from being in corporate and in the private sector, Mm -hmm. there's, like, auditors to audit our money, Mm -hmm. you know, and make sure that the accountants and all the different departments that – you know, make up the stock market and our economy Mm -hmm. that is running appropriately and holding them accountable. We need to do the same for our public servants. Mm -hmm. You know, the same way that FDA approves of our food. Mm -hmm. Like there needs to be someone like holding the social workers accountable and making sure that the process that is going through, like 
it is effective, effective. Mm-hmm. and efficient mm-hmm. you know what i mean and so like we've been researching we haven't found anything mm-hmm. and i'm not sure exactly where to start but dcf they monitor themselves mm-hmm. you right. know what i mean it's like so it's all like internal yeah it's all internal so work it could so be corruption yeah and, no one would and you need know. a third party to like really point those things out you know which is what the judge is supposed to do so if i have a case and i'm just like this case needs to close the kid is home the mom is doing what she needs to do. This case needs to close. The supervisor doesn't trust it. Uh, I don't know. Did you check mom's closet? Were there another person living there? You know, is there yeah. somebody else there? And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, this is unbelievable. And then you go to court and then the court is supposed to be like, no, the kid's going home, you know, but yeah. sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. So I just feel like. The people that get to decide what happens to these child's lives are so far removed from the problem and watching it day to day that to them, like that child is just another entity. Yeah. Oh, that's just another case number. That's just another case number. And so it's like, that's why there's got to be something there that's like. Especially if you have, if if I have 20 cases and my supervisor is in charge of five people yeah that's a hundred cases mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. who's on top of your supervisor ensuring that like she's not abusing you know what i mean mm-hmm. like right. her privilege or her work hours or like how many times are you taking vacation how many hours are you actually spending are you responding mm-hmm. to your emails is it in a timely mm-hmm. manner are you calling people back like who's holding that person accountable because in corporate if three dollars was missing i'm managing 2.3 yeah. trillion dollars yeah three dollars is missing we sitting you down yeah. you're gonna have the head of the department <laughs> you just might have the client come down yeah, like we have a meeting yeah. yeah so it's like we need to treat the lives of these children the same way we treat right our money, money that is crazy <laughs> oh my gosh all right so we could be here for like another <laughs> three more hours yeah. but our time's up i want to thank you guys so much no, for being on awesome. here thank and you. having this amazing discussion it was dope having the different perspectives mm-hmm. and um the way we've seen the foster care system work from our different angles of it was very interesting so just as a reminder this is the mindful podcast so i'm gonna leave you guys with a mindful practice (laughs) for today so it's gonna sound a little weird but i want you to find four rocks or stones Mm -hmm. go in your backyard go dig in Mm -hmm. have fun be out in nature and i want you without attachment and without judgment to stack those four rocks and see if you could stack them in a way that they can actually like build a stackable tower or whatever, or a rock structure. Okay. So I had my guests do that before they came in and I'm just going to let them tell it. Cause I don't want you guys to think I'm feeding you (laughs) BS. It's such an innocent little activity, but what I got from it was like a nice positive reinforcement, just being able to build it in like one try or um, without it falling. I don't know. It was just, it was short, but mm-hmm. effective for me. It did like the same for me. I was looking at how he built his rocks and I was like, wow, I didn't think of that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm so like rigid. Mm-hmm. I like went from like largest rock to the smallest because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it makes sense. It would balance. But he actually put the second biggest rock at the very bottom. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, look at that. But when I was doing it, I just came from work. So I was like, I didn't even realize I was really tense and like how high my shoulders were up. And when Teresa was just like, no attachment, no judgment. Like, I just like took a deep breath and was like, like, 
I said it with that voice. The yeah, it was real. It was real smooth. You know what I mean? She's like, here's some rocks, like build them and like, <laughs> don't judge yourself, you know? And I'm such a perfectionist. And I was just like, yeah, let's just put these rocks together. All right. Largest and smallest and stack them. And it just made me relax. And I didn't realize my shoulders were so high up. Yeah. <laughs> it was so tense. Yeah, I really enjoyed this exercise, too, because it made me feel like a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I was just so focused on, like, getting the rocks to where it needed mm-hmm. to be. The non-judgmental piece, too, is important <laughs> because when you say that before you do it, you realize how much you judge yourself. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I'm just building rocks. Why do I feel like? Because I did it with, like, other people in the room together. And yeah. I, I'm competitive. <laughs> so I was just like, I'm going to do it first. And I'm like, naughty, like. Bring yourself back. It's not a competition. You're just putting rocks on each other. So I think it's helpful in the bigger picture and the grand scheme of things because, Mm -hmm. like, when you're doing things, it's like, it's not that deep. Right. Right. Relax. You're building. All right. So thank you guys so much for coming in today. It's a wrap for episode three, the Mindful Podcast, and we are out.